They were raised on small, poor ranches in opposite corners of the state. Jack Twist in Lightning Flat, up on the Montana border, and Estelle Marr from around Sage, near the Utah line. Both high school dropout country boys with no prospects, brought up to hard work and privation, both rough-mannered, rough-spoken, and near to the stoic life. Ennis, reared by his older brother and sister after their parents drove off the only curve on Dead Horse Road, leaving them $24 in cash and a two-mortgage ranch, applied at age 14 for a hardship license that make, let him make the four-hour-long that let him make the hour-long trip from the ranch to the high school. Lightning recap in Annie Prue's Brokeback Mountains. Oh, come on, you know this one. It's the one with the gay cowboys. You have a little time. We have a little podcast. This is Short Story Short Podcast, the podcast that asks the question, what are we going to read next week? But today here I'm with... Christy Baxter. Yes, and Christy... Yes? What are we going to have read last week? We are going to have read last week, a.k.a. around 6 p.m. today, two hours before recording, uh, Brokeback Mountain by Annie Prue. Let me just start by saying, this is a story that I have loved since about 1997 when I read it in the only copy of the New Yorker that hung around Emerson College. And this is a story that highlights Annie Prue's absolute ability to write in the setting that she is presenting better than almost any other author I can think of. She in, It's as if she is inhabiting that place while she's writing it for the New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much, yeah, the setting is really a character in her, in her stories and especially in this one. And we get, it, it seeps into pretty much every aspect of the story, the characters, uh, attitudes and memories and dialogue. And it's, it's really impressive how truly immersive her writing is for a setting. Absolutely. And I think, one of the great things here is that she has these two characters who swim around with a few other characters, but really it's Ennis and it's Jack. By the way, Jack Twist, Annie Prue needs to be seriously taken to task for having the gayest name in the history of gay literature. It does allow for a very nice uh, wordplay later, but later in the story. But, true, true. Yeah, she has created two characters that are immediately identifiable. She did not have to have dialogue tags with this. Ennis is clearly Ennis. Jack is clearly Jack. And she's so good at getting Ennis's, I don't want to say abruptness, but he's very short-spoken, I think, is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, you definitely feel the characters and you kind of, even in their speech patterns, you get a sense without, even without the backstory that we get of, you know, where they come from and how they were raised. It, it's very, uh, it's very impressive. I think I've said impressive twice now. I'm going to stop. <laughs> it's impressive if you do, but uh, I think there's a lot here that speaks to a 
spareness of idea that is not necessarily represented in the prose, but is in the sort of aspect. This is actually, if you map it out, it's an incredibly simple story. It's basically maybe 10 scenes, and I think it's technically a novella, but... I might yeah. argue with that. I don't, I don't know if it's quite novella length. Short stories is, you know, essentially the, you can read it in, in one sitting. And this is definitely a one sitting story. I mean, like it's, it's a little bit on the longer side, but it's not, uh, not terribly long. And of course I'm going to uh, check out, okay, it's actually 10,000 words. All right. That's close. That's close. That's, that's in the ballpark. Yeah. That's in the ballpark. And I think one of the beautiful things about writing a slightly longer tale is that she can get little things in there that seem to take a little less wording than other authors would. The ending in particular, which we'll definitely get to, I think she gives just enough there and draws out the face moistening that uh, happens at that point. Yes, it's very, for a long story, it's amazing how spare it is, almost Hemingway-esque. And hey, yeah, we even have that, that Hemingway uh, bit of, uh, well, you know, spoilers. One of the main guys dies at the end. <laughs> Which anyone who has seen the movie would know. But what's incredible is that so much of the movie is directly taken from the story. And at the same time, having seen the story, having read the story before I saw the movie, it didn't change any of my sort of conceptions of the character, how things should be delivered. It all still maintained from the original. That's incredibly rare. And that's an incredibly, that's a sign of incredibly strong writing. And I think Annie Prue here, more so than in uh, that other story with the truck and the also language that seemed like it wasn't in the New Yorker, (laughs) I think was also in the New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. There is that sense that she connects with the reader so quickly and has so firmly established these images that no externality is going to change them. Yeah, they're very unchangeable characters to begin with. And I think she really establishes that pretty early on. And it just, it's interesting to have a story without too much real character development. We get, I think a little, but it's kind of, I would say even maybe off screen. and really just the, the main character development we get is the development of the relationship and, you know, how it, how it kind of ends. And so to have unchangeable characters is really tough to pull off for a writer because that's what a lot of people are looking for is how do the characters change by the end? How, how do they develop? What, what aspects of the story change them in, to different people? Yes. And he said, taking improv classes, I think the the thing there that happens is, and what I've taken away from this the whole time is, these are two characters who are ill-defined without each other. They have lives, they do stuff, but they are only really peopling 
when they have each other as a pair. And that shows here for sure. And towards the end, of course, we get the idea that, well, maybe Jack Twist has a little more to him. But Ennis is still, Ennis at the beginning and the end, not too different. Jack, it does seem like, has roller coastered at least a little bit. Certainly, yeah. There's there's a little bit of a roller coaster uh, action going on there, and uh, it's it's a definitely. A, I I don't know whether to call it a decline or an incline. Honestly, it's a <laughs> it's a climb. Yeah, it's a climb. Like, like but like like the Kevin. Oh, I like him. He was in a good play. That's right. That makes this a right of fumble. The dialogue here also, of course, has that that perfect sensation of how do you get your characters across so quickly? And unlike Hemingway, I think where she is most successful is in making the dialogue feel human. Because even, and it's, you know, two and three, two and three word responses half the time (laughs) feel like someone really talking. Whereas, you know, Hemingway's pair, not so much. It felt a little more writery. And that may even be down to the the characters chosen. If you're going to have these down-to-earth men of the land, you know, cattle rustling or whatever, they're not rustling cattle, but um, (laughs) it took me a long time to realize that cattle rustling meant cattle stealing. Um, So (laughs) I just thought it was like hurting for the longest time, for more years than I'd like to admit. But you have these sort of, you know, men of the earth. They're very plain in their motives and desires and and then that translates into their speech and so I think it also comes down to the types of characters because if you had any of these characters talking like Hemingway characters it definitely wouldn't come off and if Hemingway ever had any of his characters talk like these characters it wouldn't be Hemingway and so (laughs) it's it kind of feels like when we compare that, it's an unfair comparison because there's there's some ways in which the story is Hemingway-esque and some ways in which it isn't. But I think I think she is, uh, I would say, better than than Hemingway at getting the the voice to be authentic to the character. Absolutely. And the way that she carries that through to the rest of the prose, I think also is is exceptional because it doesn't make it feel jammed in. And this is actually something you find a lot in a lot of Westerns. There'll be a definitive delineation between what is prose and what is dialogue. And here she sort of run it together. So it has the same sensation. So you're not being bumped up against, you know, the grand cowboy of the West who has the's and no G's at the end of their, uh, and a lot of extra A's. <laughs> I'm going to be dropping my G's for like a week after having read this story. And that's, I I already do that because it's kind of a Pennsylvania thing, but I'm going to be doing it. I'm going to be doing it even more so. Reckon? Uh. Yins. Yins reckon? Yins, damn you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that we get Ennis' relationship with Alma. 
and she is the she is arguably the saddest character and i think we're supposed to attach a lot to that relationship because it gets a fair amount of page actually um it gets nearly as much as the sex scenes (laughs) (laughs) but it has this sort of inevitability that we know is going to happen because they only are people when they are together and i do love that he loves his little girls but they don't really appear yeah they're just kind of non-entities we we hear about them but we don't see them very much Mm -hmm. and so it, it it feels like we have to question whether that love for his little girls is true or if he's just paying lip service but it feels when when it comes out in actions like him joining the family for thanksgiving after his wife left him for the grocer that feels like one of the few times where we get an action that matches his words of that he loves them to pieces even if he does you know manhandle and nearly hurt probably hurt alma in the kitchen afterwards so yeah it's it's that sort of there is there are two tragedies here and we're sort of, I, I get the feeling we're supposed to think the tragedy with Alma is actually pathos and the relationship with Jack is actually tragedy or is it the reverse? It's the reverse because the tragedy has the flawed character. Yes. And Ennis is, is flawed for having entered into that, that relationship. Although maybe not, there's sort of that question and we get the pathos definitely, it was out of his control completely. So then Jack would be the flawed one. I think they're both flawed. I think we can have both of them be flawed and and that's uh, the inability to get past those flaws is definitely part of the story. And, you know, I, I do feel like he married Alma because he felt like that's what you do. He had no other choice. And I don't know if that's, if if conforming to society out of fear, because he definitely has, you know, a fear of uh, the getting, you know, the tire iron treatment and the hate crimes that he's he's been exposed to in the past. I don't know if that's uh, a flaw. It's just, it seems, you know, pretty rational to, to hide something that could get you killed. It's just survival instinct. And Christy, you are getting your true crime card revoked because you did not say that Jack Twist lit up the room when he walked in. Damn it. I worked so hard for that card. Now I'm going to have to write into the company again and request a new one. Damn it. Sigh. (laughs) (laughs) I really do love this story. And I also love the movie. Um, And part of the reason for that is not only the faith... (laughs) <laughs> faithfulness yes it's a it's a faithful adaptation yeah yes it's a faithful at times word for word adaptation at the same time it gets the spirit of the piece right and that is something that is often the problem with adaptations and particularly the problem with adaptations of short stories usually you're padding to fill out a full film out of it they didn't need to do any padding they 
just kind of had to have some lovely vistas. And, you know, it has that sense of this is a story of a great love affair where if you actually sort of map it out, it's not that great a love affair. It's not for sure. It's, it's a sad uh, relationship. And I think that the fact that they are only, as you put it, able to really be people around each other speaks to something that's not quite right about the relationship because we do have to have the ability to be people in the rest of our lives and not just in our relationships. If a relationship sucks you up so much that you become just a husk when you're around other people, then something is wrong. I would call that a red flag, in fact. I don't know who I am, so it's okay. (laughs) You're Christopher J. Garcia. We know this. (laughs) I said it at the beginning of the... Fuck, I did not. (laughs) I said it for you. (laughs) Fair point. (laughs) Um, I do think also we're granted Lorene, which is a hard name to say, Lorene. Lorene. Uh, Rhymes ooh. with Tureen. <laughs> ooh, which I could go for right now. A little pack down. Right. Um, ooh, that does sound good. And she has, since we are not following Jack, we don't get the sense that she was long put upon, that, you know, it was this terrible mistake. And in fact, they're still married <laughs> at the end. But we did get sort of the sense that maybe she knew something was up, of course. I believe she absolutely did. Yeah, her uh, sort of manner while on the phone with Ennis definitely implied, you know, that. so no doubt about it, she was polite, but the little voice was as cold as snow. And I think that right there, talking to one of her husband's longtime friends, says a lot about what she knows and she's just not going to come right out with it. And I believe that his, uh, at the very least, Jack's father knew something as well, just in his behavior towards Ennis seemed very uh, um, immediately confrontational without any sort of reason for it that was overt. So it, it probably had to do with some suspicions of something going on there. Yeah. And I think uh, the fact Jack brought around some other guy, some other guy, with some damn fool idea that was also probably driving that. But in some ways, this is a story about keeping up appearances at the same time as being a story that is rejecting our initial expectations of these kind of characters. I do find it hilarious that nearly simultaneously with the release of this, we had South Park talking about gay cowboy sitting around eating pudding as the definition of what an art house film is. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, that is funny. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, I like what you said. It's, it's about keeping up appearances, but also kind of in, in our own ways, trying to reject what society is forcing upon us. And those two definitely come into conflict. And then that's really the, the center of the conflict is you know, Ennis's need to keep up appearances in order to ensure his own safety and Jack's eventual rejection of keeping up appearances, at least to some extent, at least with some of the people in his life. Uh, And we kind of see that, at least from Ennis's point of view, he was 
right to keep up the appearances because he lives a longer life, although it might be a more miserable one. I'm sad. <laughs> yeah, I, I am not cheering you up, am I? <laughs> it's fine. Cowboys Buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it's protecting me. <laughs> yes. He's had his seatbelt on this whole time, guys. He's in his car. <laughs> I'm like, are you expecting us to go for a ride? Are you worried? <laughs> I never know where these conversations are going to take us. So. That is true, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, what else you got on this one? Anything? Uh, I just, I really enjoyed the prose and was impressed, like I said, a couple of times by <laughs> the realness and authenticity of the dialogue and I think that's about it it was it was a, an interesting ride and a sad one and it's it definitely is gonna stick with me for a while so because I had actually not read it nor have I seen the movie oh confession time well I am I getting my literature card revoked too because uh, two cards in one night man the Replacement fee. I'm just going to give you the yellow card. <laughs> so I get a replacement card in a way. <laughs> in a way, yes. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, Christy. Hey, hey, yes. You know, the weather's getting nicer. The groundhog apparently five weeks ago saw his shadow. Uh, so that means we've got spring. Maybe we should take a break and we'll call it spring pause of one week okay all right i can i can go with that i was gonna go with a uh, warm weather break but if you want to go with spring pause that that works too warm weather pause you're right <laughs> <laughs> yes but when we come back maybe while i'm sitting on the beach wondering why is it so cold on spring break uh <laughs> oh that's a better word better term for it Hey, there you go. You found it. I knew you would. Oh, yeah. But what should we read then? We should read Jeeves Takes Charge by P.G. Woodhouse, whose name you told me how to pronounce. <laughs> well, I only know because it's what they called him on Archer. <laughs> oh, true. You know what? I never actually. Yeah. If I'd have thought about that, I would have recalled that I was like, oh, that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> now I went Woodhouse. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, a very I love the Jeeves stories. If you've ever seen the uh, the Jeeves and Wooster series on was it on PBS? It was on some British thing with Hugh Laurie, aka Doctor House, and Stephen Fry, aka Stephen Fry. He is well worth watching, and got me to read all of the books. So yay! Yay! <laughs> all right. Well, until then, this. Is short story. Short podcast.